Hey guys, just a quick note before we start. In this episode, I'll be talking to Alan Dilworth, and he wanted me to issue uh, this quick correction. In this episode, he gives the year of the Utoya shootings as 2004, but wanted to make sure that you knew that that event actually occurred in 2011. Welcome to episode 225 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. In this episode, I will be talking to Alan Dilworth. If you've been listening to Stageworthy for a while, or maybe you're a first-time listener and you're listening through a link on the website that you got, either through a direct link or through Twitter or Instagram, did you know that you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode? You can do that by searching for Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and clicking the handy subscribe button so that every week the latest episode of Stageworthy will be delivered right to your device. And if you subscribe, let me know that you're a new subscriber. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. And you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and the website where you can find the archive of all 225 episodes is at stageworthypodcast.com. As I mentioned, my guest is Alan Dilworth. Alan is a director, playwright, and teacher, and is the artistic director of Necessary Angel. Alan joined me to talk about Necessary Angel's production of David Grieg's The Events at the Streetcar Crow's Nest Theatre from March 1st to March 15th in Toronto. So he's doing a little bit of reading about the event, the events. I keep want to say the event, but it's I know the isn't it's interesting, isn't that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think there have been movies and TV shows called the event, and I think that's where my brain, the brain goes, is like, oh, of course it's about an event, but no, this is about this is more than one event. It is, um, and it's it seems like it's it seems a little dark. Is it as dark as it seems, or is it? Uh, I would say that it's a piece that finds light in the darkness. And I think it's actually this, the, it's one of the more hopeful pieces I've ever read in that. Okay. It's such a determined search for light mm. in the darkness. And, and it's the search action of it that for me is really interesting and instructive. Mm-hmm. It speaks to resilience in a way that I think is really useful yeah. in the world right now. What's the, what's the, uh, What's the elevator pitch for the events? What can you tell me about the premise? Okay, the premise. So this is a play that's inspired by the horrific uh, Anders Breivik shootings in Norway in 2004. Mm -hmm. And this, but this piece, what it does is it takes the idea of the political youth camp that was the the site of the shootings in Norway, and it translated translates it to a community choir. Okay. And it's written by David Grieg, Scottish playwright, yeah. and it premiered in Scotland at the Edinburgh Festival okay. uh-huh. in 2013. So what it does is it it takes a community choir. So there's a the there's a, a priest 
and she runs a community choir for vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And uh, a an extremist young man uh, targets the choir mm. and comes and shoots the choir. It does not dramatize the violence. Mm-hmm. What it does is it dramatizes the priest's journey of trying to come to terms uh, with this event and to try to understand it in some way. Mm. On some level, I think what she's doing is she's kind of also reclaiming her soul that I th- yeah. she feels that she lost in the incident or in the events, as well, it were. It's interesting to be dealing with a priest in that that kind of situation. It, it brings to mind the that age-old question that, that religious people are always asked, why do why does why does God let bad things happen to good people? And that's definitely like here you have these vulnerable kids and this terrible thing happens and they were just trying to be better. How is that? It's got to be really uh, um, shattering for a priest. I think incredibly shattering. And someone who has his, whose identity and work and mm. efforts and labor are all around making people feel welcome yeah. and helping to care for them and giving them a safe space. And then, of course, it ends up being a very not safe space yeah. this particular uh, day. How did uh, how did this play come across? How did you come across the play? I came across the play because I have read some of David Grieg's work before, mm-hmm. and um, I had heard about the play and for and had forgotten about it. Um, as happens, mm-hmm. as you're, you know, I read many many plays. Yes, yeah. I hadn't read the play yet, mm-hmm. but I did read the play, and the moment I read it, I felt I have to do this mm-hmm. play. Um, it's also a play that uses its relationship with language and theater for me is, is, um, both something recognizable and provocative at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like his writing is such that it, you know, sometimes with the theater, and I mean this in not some old stodgy way, but in a kind of living present way, there's something mythic about what he's doing that I, I, that appeals to me. And I think there's some wisdom in it. Dealing even though with a very contemporary, this kind of reactionary political um, extremism yeah. is such a part of our world. Yeah. And so its relevance is very high. At the same time, I feel like there's some very, very old ideas in it mm. that are, for me, give me some solace um, in moments where it feels like there are events that are despairing, that can give one despair. What kind of old ideas are, are you finding in it? Well, um, this idea of, uh, a pros that a process, for example, of undergoing grief, mm. that grief mm. is a process, yeah. you know, it's not something immediate, um, undergoing recovery mm. from something that happens is, is a, is a process and that we undergo things, yeah. you know, I, I think, um, it's so easy to want things so immediately and, you know, yeah. myself yeah. as much as anyone, especially well, sure. in our time, we can have almost anything, anytime. Yeah. And this idea of actually not um kind of the uh, realities of impermanence and and struggle are very apparent yeah. in this play in a beautiful way in a very hopeful way and grief is not um we li- you know we're very you know we're sort of like in in the instagram age where everything is constructed and curated and you can't really curate your grief <laughs> and it's not it's not as it's not really instagrammable it's not um, it, it, it's messy, and so I think sometimes we have less patience with it, as well as we feel like other people have less patience with it because <laughs> yeah. it's 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 hard to put 
on Instagram, you know? Yeah, yeah. I always find it fascinating when artists put their grief on stage, performance artists mm -hmm. or, you know, writers who have mm -hmm. kind of taken that and done something gorgeous with it. Because it is such a private yeah. and it is something that seems so not uh, Instagrammable, as you say. And, and, um, that's, and I, and I, I think that maybe there's a, gr that Grieg is uh, exercising a grief he has more philosophically about the world that the events in Norway had kind of taken from him in some way. Yeah. And he was working on, uh, working on that just as a, as a citizen of the world to yeah. put that in perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about the artists, you know, putting the grief on stage, whether they're performance artists, plays, whatever, um, there is something cathartic about that. And, and, and you, by making art out of something that's affected you so deeply, you, you can create something even more deep. Mm. Um, and in a way, deal with it better by sharing it. I agree. I mean, I think I, my, my friend Thomas Moskopoulos is a, is a Athenian director. He's a wonderful artist and a good friend. And he always says that when he's directing tragedy, which he does a lot and has many times, he says for him, it's always so refreshing. Like the material refreshes him in some way. And I, I, I always find that fascinating. And I can't help but feel, you know, there's been some pieces that I've directed in my career that have been, that are very harrowing works. Mm. But every time I feel like they've refreshed me, and this is, this is one of them. I feel like when I come to work, it's like, wow, okay, we're going to step into this world, but it's refreshed me. If We Were Birds by Aaron Shields, I directed the premiere of that at Summerworks and then right. later at Tarragon. And that was a similar piece. It was, there was something that was, very freeing mm -hmm. about that material and to share that material. Mm. Yeah. Now this also has, there is a choir that's part of, part of the show. Um, and how, is, I mean, I, I don't know if you have a choir here today. Um, how is it, first off, what role does the choir play in the performance and how, what's the process of rehearsing something with a piece missing? Yes. Great. It's a great question. So yes, there is a choir. There is a, uh, a choir, a community choir that will show up at each performance and will join us on stage. Um, uh, the choir in the show is a wonderful thing. Like everything in this show, it has multiple meanings. Yeah. And so on one level, they uh, represent a community choir that Claire, the priest choir leader, is represents her choir in some way. They also represent a kind of Greek tragedy that witness the action uh. and bear witness to that. And I think they also just reflect the audience. Mm. You know, and I, so I think they that those are some of the they and they do at times um uh and they 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 certainly they bring the joy and beauty of music. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um anyway, so that <laughs> The other, and then um, the process for them is really exciting mm -hmm. because what we've done is we've also kind of shared some of the wisdom from previous productions and the premiere production. But what we're doing is we set up a series of short rehearsals in our final week of our rehearsal process okay. in the hall. And so we'll gather with them and we give them an outline structure. Mm -hmm. And some time ago, we've uh, passed on the music to them right. and been in conversation with all the choir leaders. Jacqueline Tay is our music director. She's fantastic. Um, and she's a jazz vocalist, has a jazz band. And she was just featured on um, Jazz FM, okay. an article on her. Yeah. Uh, and she's a, she's, a great, uh, she's a great team member for us. And uh, so she's also been working uh, much more closely, closely with the choirs. But the now, choirs themselves, they won't have 
seen the whole show. They're an audience. That's right. For real when they watch it. That's right. So what we will do is I am sending them a copy of the script. Right. Just because I feel like I want to make sure that with the content that we're responsible for everyone's well-being. Yes, yeah. But we will give them there's going to be Jacqueline will be accompanying them mm -hmm. and guiding them through the experience and we will do a rehearsal where we'll roughly tell them where they need to be in space at certain spots yeah. and then she'll cue them um, when uh, they actually get to the show so we have like in a way two rehearsals right with the choir huh. without probably maybe with or without the actors we're not sure yet hmm. so it's there's a lot being thrown at the wall yeah in performance yeah and that's also part of the liveness of the whole experience I mean that is the the amazing thing about live theater is <laughs> that you know there's the, the unpredictability um just I want to detour for a second and, and, and talk a little bit about um about you specifically because your I want to talk about your theater origin story ah. um where how you became interested in theater, what took you along this path? I mean, you've been, um, you were interim artistic director at Soul Pepper. Yeah, they officially acting artistic the director, director, yeah, director yeah. At uh, Soul Pepper before you went to Necessary Angel. What's, what's the path that got you started and took you here? Well, I mean, I grew up, I had a chance to see some theater. I fell in love with theater in high school. Uh, uh, I came from, I come from an amazing family and, but, but, it wasn't like a, a theater, like arts and culture was not, uh, we were very, I think athleticism mm -hmm. was something that was prevalent in my family, um, among other things. And so it was kind of a, a course that I started charting for myself. Mm. You know, I was an Irish Catholic kid, you know, background. And I think, to be honest with you, as a little kid, when my mom dropped me off at Sunday school, I fell in love with storytelling because of all the dioramas. Okay. Like I would play and I would be like, it would be like a maquette and I could like I'll tell the story and I would spend hours. In fact, I think my mom worried about me right. because my focus level was seemed ridiculously long to her mm. in terms of that kind of interest and engagement. So there's something there, yeah. I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that also like storytelling was always just such a part of things for me. Yeah. I loved reading. I loved books. And then I got into high school and I stepped on stage and... I had um, a drama teacher in high school who had come up from the States. He was quite political, left-leaning, mm -hmm. you know, at a Catholic boys' high school. And he really was like, uh, put some very interesting works mm. in front of us, even at that age in high school. And I was very much drawn to them. And I had a talent, I didn't realize, but it, it was one of the first times in my life where people reflected back at me. Mm. Just people who weren't even interested in the art saying, wow, you're really good. You know, had you seen and that was as an actor on stage, or, or did was your first exposure to theater being on stage? I think I had seen it. Yeah. You know, I had seen it in a funny way. I think that there was a, a kind of a hippie priest at the uh, in the parish where I grew up as a little kid, who was friends with my family, an amazing guy, and he used to direct um, plays with the young people. They had like a youth group or something, and I remember watching them yeah. and kind of being struck by the fact that there was this stage space where people were enacting things yeah. that somehow reflected us or we felt a part of it and how yeah. live that was. I mean, I loved, mm. I loved, I loved film as a kid. I, I was very attracted to that mm. storytelling too, but there was something just so exciting and communal about that, that as a kid, I was like, I have to, I kind of think I want to do that. Yeah. I do think that's why it, I love when, when we're able to expose children to theater early because if all they know is television and film, 
theater is is different. Like being in the room, yeah, in yeah. the room with the people that are doing it is a fascinating thing. I remember going to see the Panto this year with a four-year-old, and she was angry because she said, "We're just going to a movie." And then as soon as it started, she was like, and completely enraptured because it wasn't a movie. They were there. Wow, you could see them breathing, and it was so real for her. And I think you know that's the why it's so important to, to get the kids in there as early as possible because it is different. Yeah, it is different. A friend of mine was just talking to me about a piece and my friend was saying, you know, um, working on this project, that someone related to them was upset by some of the material mm-hmm. because they felt like it would reflect too closely on life. Like I f- and what I mean is, like if you, know, if you know someone, like Michel Tremblay used to say, you know, I, th- I had heard that he waited till his mother passed before he could write what he needed to write. Right. Because theater is so alive. I bet if he was a filmmaker, he could have gone ahead. Oh, sure. But Absolutely, because it's yeah. theater, the content, the liveness of it is so beautiful and alive, but also in that yeah. way threatening. You also understand how political theater has always yeah. been yeah. or had the possibility of being. Yeah, It's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I started, I think what happened for me as a director was I started, I started writing. I wanted to write. Um, before Theater Junction became Theater Grand, they used to be a bit like Soul Pepper in that they would re- do, redo classics. Right. And so Mark Laws, the artistic director, way back when, um, in 2000, asked Mev and myself, my partner Mev, and we were friends at the time, and we had Bell Tower Theater with our other friend Patrick Robinson, and he invited Mev and I out to be actors in a whole season. Mm. And part of that season, there was some workshopping of some plays, one with Sharon Pollock, and I was watching her, and in my arrogance... I thought, oh, I think I can write. As I was watching that process unfold, and I decided to write. And so for me, the process of directing, I was also watching directing and thinking, I think I can do that. Mm. Richard Rose once said I was, he remembered, uh, he wrote in a letter about me, he said he remembered having me in the room as an actor and thinking and finding it like, oh, it's so annoying because he keeps wanting to look at the big picture and not the individual story. So it's kind of there for me. But then what happened was I directed two shows, one called Majorly, which was a piece I wrote um, about Picasso mm-hmm. and kind of uh, or the and the tension between relationships yeah. and one's own ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later I wrote another piece uh, called The Unforgetting, um, which was a piece uh, in a way that was loosely inspired by my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. But it's a piece about... Um, uh, kind of uh, the uncovering of um, information in a mill town, in a mill around the kind of person who had started that mill and then the effect that that had uh, on uh, the child who was now kind of trying to uh, who has kind of had to experience the legacy of that. Really exciting uh, exciting journeys for me and also it was really exciting to be writing and also directing and I was creating with, you know, again with Mev <coughs> <laughs> excuse me and Patrick with yeah. Bell Tower Theater this is an early like you know the early 2000s in summer works yeah. and these were works that for me kind of launched things for me and all of a sudden John Kaplan was watching and you know we you know you get your first like you know five ends and yes, you're like yeah, what yeah. and then you know you're you're like things are happening and people are paying attention and it was a great blessing but it op- ultimately opened up directing doors for me mm. and I didn't necessarily expect to just become a director which I predominantly has been my career it was about just it was about making shows with people yeah. I really love to make shows with and I've been very lucky yeah when it, when things first started to go that way when it was more directing than anything else were you, 
were you torn at all, or what did it feel right? I feel like I've been really lucky because I've worked on so many new plays. Like mm. I've put over twenty. I, I think if I went back and counted, probably around twenty-five new plays, like premieres on the stage mm. through my you know twenty-plus years directing, yeah, and including my own. And I and I, um, but I often feel like you know part of. I feel like there's elements to writing and directing. And I feel like at times with the right project, I've been able to really lean into that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't necessarily mean telling the uh, writer what to write, but to <clears throat> work very dramaturgically, not just with the text, but also with the design team and sometimes with the actor and how the actors uh, operate to find you know, unique uh, performance dramaturgies that for me are kind of ways of, I think, fulfilling some of the aspects of that kind of writer in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you about um, when you came in as the acting artistic director at, at Soul Pepper, um, what you saw as as the goal at that point? There had been, you know, there had been the the, the incident, the, the the issue with the, um, that everybody knows. Yeah, about. and and yep. and uh, the leadership had to vacate and. Were you just trying to get through the season, or did you feel like there was something that had that you could do that you needed to do to to start healing? Or, or, or? Um, I had so what happened was the the some uh, artists had come to me and said we would we would love it if you would be able to um, step in, and none of us knowing what that meant or what that would be, but also right. but more but more officially, um, the board came to me and asked me if I would step up and mm-hmm. step in as acting artistic director in a like a very very difficult time yeah. and moment um, and the fact is that I felt compelled I felt compelled to do it in terms of I think just um, having um, been there in the lead up to that I felt compelled to see things through. I loved, I loved many people there, and I wanted to. I felt that I had the information and also the ability to weather that storm. And I can be pretty good in crisis mode, mm-hmm. and so I felt that I could. Uh, I knew that I could be helpful, and I knew that I could listen, mm-hmm. even in uh, as if things got very reactive. And did they get reactive, or? Hmm. I mean, <clears throat> I would say I witnessed a lot. Um, I witnessed incredible amounts of courage. I witnessed incredible amounts of um, generosity, um, and I did. I also witnessed a lot of reaction from many different, you know, in many different ways from many different constituents, you know. And I, I, but I, I, I learned an enormous amount, and I think at my best is when I was listening very, very carefully. And, um, and I'm very proud of the work that happened. I, you know, and including a show, I, I, um, two months after um, the events there, I um, was, uh, had been programmed to direct Idomeneus, this role in Schimmelfini play, which I love. And, um, and it's one of these plays I couldn't, pa- if it had been a more simplistic, naturalistic piece, I would have just said, please, someone else do this, because yeah. there's yeah. lots to take care of. But I couldn't quite do it with the nature of that play because there's the level of kind of authorship in a way that has to happen with it and had already happened. So, um, and I'm enormously proud of that piece of art. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the heat of it all and and so much of the art that was created in that time um, uh, and inspired by so many people there was an enormous amount of, of support I think about um, I think about it a lot all the time um, and I felt very you know I was very fortunate to have all of the people around that were around to work with and collaborate with in that in the building and outside the building yeah yeah I'll never forget it yeah, no, I can imagine that. and and um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and I I'm very excited about Soul Pepper and the leadership of Emma and Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really, really, uh, I feel I was just directed Mother's Daughter there, which mm-hmm. uh, we had done at Stratford, and yeah. it was so it was great to yeah. be in the building and the op- opening night to be at you know they have dinners before the opening and to be back at at uh, one of the dinners there and seeing so many familiar friendly faces, nice. it was great. Yeah. How long after you finished act uh, as the acting artistic director did uh, did you were you approached by uh, Necessary Angel? Well, um, I had let's see how long after was I approached? It wasn't I, you know I heard about I had heard that there was going they were going to be searching for a new artistic director and began thinking about it and you know I I love the company a lot I always have yeah, it's yeah. always captured my imagination and yeah. so. Um, I was, um, you know, I was very eager to just kind of find out what would be happening and, yeah. and what would happen. And so I just kind of kept my ears open. And then when it was appropriate to, to start kind of a conversation and, and see where that would go. Um, I was hired in June, um, okay. at the very end of May, yeah. the beginning of June. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I was up in Stratford at the time, kind uh-huh. of finishing up the process up there. Uh, so it was a really nice kickstart right before my opening there to yeah, have yeah, this nice. news and yeah. this excitement. Yeah. Um, for people who might not be familiar with, with Necessary Angel, what's the, the Coles notes about what Necessary Angel is as a theater company? Hmm. Well, this is really funny. The Coles notes. Okay. Whoops. So Necessary Angel is 40 years old mm-hmm. or has just was for it's 41. Right. Um, and of course it was started by artistic, uh, by the, uh, the, the, um, uh, um, Richard Rose yes. uh, created the company with right. some colleagues, and he was the uh, artistic director uh, for almost 30 years. Right. And then Daniel Brooks was the second artistic director, and of course, Jennifer Tarver, all of whom are extraordinary directors. Mm-hmm. It is our uh, Necessary Angel is an artist driven company. Okay. It always has been. I think the idea that, you know, Necessary Angel could run out of someone's bedroom if it needed to. Mm. It's that kind of a company um, with, you know, a, in terms of just like the plan, making the plan, because it's actually, a, it's really an artist-driven place. Mm. But it has, I think it's, um, it has grown um, as an organization, certainly through Richard's time and then de- very much in Daniel Brooks's time. And, um, and I think that the company is for me, I say like, I think about restaurants. Okay. So, uh, necessary angel is the kind of restaurant that you could take care and what and take, look after and take care of all the ingredients. Mm -hmm. You can have your eye, you know, everyone who's working there as opposed to a much larger restaurant where there are many, many, uh, you have to have a larger menu and you have to have more staff and you need more managers to take care of that right. as well. Necessary Angel is this gorgeous, gorgeous size. I feel really lucky. Yeah. 
So you're you're able to like sort of look at, at the whole picture as artistic director? I think very much so. Yeah. I mean, you have to. Yeah. That's kind of the job. So there's myself and two staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gail Packwood is the general manager. Yeah. And Leonard McCarty is head of communications and development with mm-hmm. us. And so really it's the three of us. And then and on an ad hoc basis, based on projects, we'll, right. we'll hire in other people. Mm-hmm. But it's, and it's a wonderful... It's a it's a wonderful size, and certainly uh, we'll see. I think it you know it may grow, but it'll I think it'll grow um, in a very sustainable way. Now, is it is it a uh, uh, does, is there like a standing company, or is it just like ad hoc, or how does the how does the the actor relationship work with with the productions? It's a it's a great question, especially coming out of a, a theater company like Soul Pepper, yeah. where you do you have founding members, and then there's people who work there fairly regularly, and then there's always some newcomers coming through. I think that with Necessary Angel, it's very project specific mm-hmm. on the one hand, but there are actors, of course, who I think that the um, artistic t- director tends to gravitate towards, who they have relationships with sure. and then of course you know always you know bringing in new people new voices new faces yeah. uh, you know for me i think back to necessary angel when you know uh um back when richard was the artistic director you know i remember always like you know richard mcmillan rh thompson mm-hmm. uh, maggie hushalak there were these extraordinary so many extraordinary actors that uh, kind of had passed through the company but i just i uh it's really exciting for me i i have some relationships with some actors that continue to inspire me yeah. all the time and uh any chance i get i kind of hunt out to 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 um you know to collaborate with them mm. i think that you know i have a responsibility to program for the company not you know for the for the actors i think in the case of especially with necessary angel right but i do of course that's a huge uh that's a huge part of of my thinking. And also I have a series of designers that I tend to work with as well. So it's a great, it's a, it's a great, it's a great company to be able to helm at this time for me. What makes a good Necessary Angel show? I think that Necessary Angel shows, uh, uh, I think that a great Necessary Angel show is a show um, where the, it is, it has strong artistic questions at play. Mm-hmm. And I think it also has complex and layered meanings. Mm-hmm. And that's, and uh, comedy, <laughs> tragedy, yeah. drama. It doesn't genre, I, I feel very open to genre. Mm-hmm. But for me, my experience always coming to Necessary Angel has always been one where it's beyond like. Right. And I think that's where the work should live. It's not about liking the work or like or dislike it, but it should be something that I hope makes you think for a couple of days, mm. you know, and it's great if you like it though. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's, that's good too. <laughs> well, I always do appreciate when a show sticks with me like that. Like I hate when I leave a show and I, leave, I can sort of dismiss it with like, oh, that was nice. Yeah. And I, I don't want to make theater like that. I know a lot of people don't want to make theater like that. Yeah. You want something that people are going to talk about for a while after. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, and, and, you know, I love to read something that you think, wow, okay, this is really stimulating. This is staying with me and haunting me. Yeah. The other night I saw Parasite mm-hmm. in the cinema, yeah. you know, and I was like, I'm not, wow, okay, this is stunning. And then thinking, hmm, I don't know. And I was thinking about, you know, no spoiler alerts, but yeah. I was thinking about the end and I was like, oh, I don't know what I think about that. Yeah. But ultimately what was so powerful for me was that for the next three days, I couldn't get it out of my head. Right. Yeah. 
And I just think, wow, good film. Well, that, I mean, great film. That's rare in film too for something to stick with you like that. Film is is usually pretty disposable. Mm. As far as we go, we see it, we sit because we're pa- we're passive passive observers. Yes, for the most part, with film in a way that we're not with theater, um, and so we can watch something and we leave. We're like, good, but you know, I'm done. Yeah. Um, but for it to have something stick with you when you've been watching quite that passively, I think is a rare. I think so too, and it's it's so exciting. It's so exciting. I actually years ago I was working with Jason Sherman, and he shared with me Mubi, which is a website M U B I, and what Mubi does is they cr- uh, um, they curate mm-hmm. films, one film a day over thirty days, and so at the end uh, every day one film that was shown 30 or 31 days ago drops off, mm. and a new one comes on, okay. and some I've been surprised. By so many of these films, but they're uh, most uh, – when I have a film stuck in my head, mm. it's usually from that site with all these cinephiles and they have a curation team. And I find that – and I and I, I like to think of that in terms of theater as well. Mm-hmm. Like I do love to see um, – I think it's not just about being idiosyncratic. Yeah. I think for me it's about personal pieces of art yeah. often have and can have – an idiosyncratic nature to them because an artist is following a series of personal investigations and questions themselves. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, I recognize that in texts when I pick them up for the theater, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, We're coming from, and and, you know, just, just this year, um, Stratford to, to Soulpepper to Necessary Angel. Um, And sort of like in different, I imagine in slightly different roles within the companies because in Stratford you were there as a director in Soul Pepper you were there as a director but also as the former acting artistic director um, and as the artistic director directing a show um, do you find that your the position in the room changes during rehearsal based on which venue you're in like do people are you viewed differently in the room either by company or actor I don't know. It's a, I mean, I think that I'm viewed, I'm probably viewed differently by every actor and in every process. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I think that I, one of the things I'm really curious about generally is like I'm interested in the ingredients, all the ingredients, all the factors yeah. that are a part of something. It's kind of a, I guess, suppose a, a uh, Buddhist inspired uh, uh, predilection of mine mm-hmm. and, uh, but also an inspiration. Yeah. And so I am, I think that I am often, um, you know, we make something together. We are something together. And so that does change. And I, you know, I certainly don't ignore, um, you know, like I am not only, I'm a director. So there's a certain, like, you know, people, I do some of the, certainly a lot of the artistic hiring as a director alone. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that has, you know, that has an impact. And uh, there is a power dynamic there that needs one needs to be cognizant of. And then, of course, as an artistic director as well, again, you know, one has to be as an artistic director who's a director. There's another layer, you know, of uh, uh, um, that there is some uh, 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 power dynamics there that one must be, you know, um, very cognizant of. You know, um, but you know, the truth is that at the end of the day, pursuing the work and the questions in the work, it's it doesn't always. I'm not, you know, I think that keeping the power dynamic questions uh, at 
you know, forward in the mind is a really good thing to do. And then also, <clears throat> if the questions in the work are really driving, I find that, you know, we, we get to a point where, you know, often we can get to a point, especially if we know each other and I've known each other for some time, mm. where, you know, the, the, it's, it can be very leveling. Yeah. Yeah, but I, you know, of course, I think that, you know, I, you know, I, I, and certainly in our time, there's more attention than ever. And I think it's fantastic in terms of looking at uh, the nature of power dynamics and, mm -hmm. and boundaries and relationships. And I think that's great. Well, I think so. And I mean, it's happening in, in some of like uh, theater schools, those, those power dynamics are being questioned and challenged and changed in a way that I think they've needed to for a long time. Um, and we're starting now to see the, the those changes happen some, in some places a lot slower than in others. Yes, yeah. Um, during the Toronto Fringe, I think you came from Stratford to a, do a ten a ten talk. I a did. Tent? Yeah, I did it. The, I what, did a ten talk. Yeah. What was the topic there that you came down for? I, I remember trying to remember what that was. It was about safe spaces. Safe spaces, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And I kind of said, well, I only know my own perspective around what, you know, what my efforts and what I've witnessed myself. And of yeah. course, I spend most of my rehearsal rooms are rooms that I'm often a director in. Yeah. Not uh, entirely, but mostly. Um, and that was, uh, um, Talia Leonard had asked me to, to come and take part in that talk. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was very inspiring. You know, end up being more of a group discussion, yes, and yeah. it was it was great, yeah. But I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that I think that you know, there's so much to there's so much to think about in yeah. that regard, you know, and to take responsibility for ourselves and to you know pay attention to you know um, the experience and the care of others. Certainly, it's you know, it's exciting. It's yeah, yeah. I think it, there. I think there are, for people who've been in the industry for, for a while, there are bad habits about um, not rocking the boat. They can get in the way of a safe space, <coughs> not through action, but through inaction. Like I remember being in theater school uh, myself in 1990-whatever, um, and I we were, I mean, most of us were afraid all the time hmm. of, like, doing the wrong thing. And that, I think, set us up for the way that we would behave in a room later on. Yes. That we would be afraid of doing the wrong thing and that would reflect badly on us. Um, and that we might be punished for that. And I think um, that that's an early lesson that took a long time for us to unlearn. Yeah. Do you think that, that that's something that – because I know, I know from my experience that that, that happened – is that something that, that, that you've seen sort of play out as well? In terms of in rooms? Yeah. If that makes in sense? The, in the rehearsal room? Do you mean with me? Just like, just like, just like watching. Because, you know, being both the director and like sort of like an inside and outside eye, have you seen, are you aware of people not wanting to rock that boat? I think, I think I've seen it. Uh, I'm, I, su I suppose. I mean, I've seen so, I've seen so many things. I mean, yeah. I've, you know. I think that um, I've worked in many, many different contexts, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I certainly built, like for me, I started by working with my friends. Yeah. And we created together and no one was the, there was no hierarchy. Yeah. We were figuring it out. Right. And learning and experimenting. And when we were frustrated, we would, you know, like with your own personal dynamics, you'd either say something or you wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I understand I didn't early on work in 
um, places where there was very intense power differentials just because I didn't, I didn't have access to those spaces right. at the beginning of my career. Yeah. Um, and I didn't go directly. I didn't go through theater school proper mm. myself at that stage. So I went to theater school much later and did an MFA and I had already established myself as a director mm. and wanted a place to experiment. And so I felt very much, um, you know, uh, in dialogue with my professors, etc. cetera. Sure. Um, you know, uh, so it was a really different dynamic and yeah. I think I was lucky. I think so. Um, and privileged in that regard. Yeah. Um, and that's not everyone's experience. I know. No. Um, but you know, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen so many things and I, and I, and, and I, and I don't, um, yeah, like I think, I think in, Bigger, the larger the institution, mm-hmm. I think the more challenging it is to hear people mm. and to and to see them. Both, yeah. you know, for the institution, and they tend to, um, you know, it's it's harder. It, it's I think that you know, there's lots of work ahead, mm-hmm. and I think that you know, I think that people are, you know, there's a collective movement mm-hmm. on many fronts to try to make, you know, all the spaces we work in. Uh, safer and yeah. and places where people are free to voice their experience more. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, back to the events, just just to just to close things off. Um, at what point? Where? How long it opens on? When you get into performance, we have our first preview on March first, mm-hmm. and we open on March fourth. Right. We play till March fifteenth. Okay. Yeah. Um, and how long have you been rehearsing at this point? We've been rehearsing. Uh, this we're in our third week right now. Yeah. So what? <coughs> tell me what one of the most uh, interesting uh, discoveries that you've found uh, in this place so far. Okay, so one of the most interesting discoveries uh, that we've found in the play so far is um, this relationship with a series of scenes mm-hmm. where. Uh, the boy, there's a, it's the two-hander, mm-hmm. but the boy sometimes slips into some other characters. Okay. And today we were working on a section of the text where the boy plays three characters back-to-back without being the boy in between. Mm. And staging them, um, I was just, I was, I was just kind of, you know, we were doing good work, developing the scenes, we're yeah. developing further, etc. But just like, what's going on? And the piece just keeps. Uh, telling us exactly kind of in the in the zone how figurative the staging needs to be Mm. and just finding what the balance of the poetics are in the piece and you know later in the day this afternoon banging our heads against the wall a little bit it's just beautiful moment where it's like oh let's just try this Mm. and then it opening opening up in a new way who knows tomorrow we may say ah let's scrap it for something else but that's the joy that's the joy. It is always interesting when that that kind of like re- revelation happens after you've been working so hard to try to force it to happen, and all of a sudden, it just happens. Yeah, it's like the I don't know <laughs> the, the clouds open and the muses whisper into somebody's ear, and it just makes sense. It's amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's so fun, and and it's so uh, present. You know, yeah. it happens in the room. We're all just working away. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Alan, thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks, Phil. Real pleasure.
This has been a Homebody Productions production.